Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. When women are primed with a piece of text that says they're biologically worse at these things, they do worse. We're not looking for a solution that is pointing out the difference even more. We're looking for ways of working that can include everybody by design. And the girls who were in the chess club, nobody saw it for its essence. They just saw it from the outside. And I'd love if we could recode every hobby that kids have because young people should just be allowed to have fun and try new things without the fear of judgment. Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Women in the technology sector or rather the lack thereof, is a topic we hear quite often about. However, taking action to help address this imbalance has not always had huge success. Until now, that is. I am so excited to be speaking with one of the great minds working at Creatable, a company that is working hard to alter this gender imbalance by connecting with young female students. Creatable is an innovation program that leverages industry partnerships to prepare young women for the future of work. Today's guest is a young woman of great rigor, determination, and intellect. It is no surprise then, at the age of just 25, she has already achieved so much. She has spent time at Google in Sydney and Seattle, has an honors thesis in human-computer interaction, and reflectively shares, with all honesty, that while studying and even working in these fields, she found it very isolating not to see anyone else in the room who looked like her. With the world moving into a digital economy space at such a rapid pace, and with much less than half of our population being represented in the major decision-making of tech, Creatable is aspiring to change this current reality by showcasing to girls how STEM is not only crucial for the world moving forward, but also an industry that is extremely creative, cool, and dare I say, on trend. It is my pleasure to welcome the fantastic woman that is Hannah Bida to the podcast today. Hi, Hannah. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Thank you so much. And thanks for that introduction. I'm so grateful to have this opportunity with you and to share and discuss the work that you do and the journey that got you here. I was thrilled for the introduction. I'm so certain that our listeners will agree with how much drive and passion that comes through when you speak about the work that you do. I'm fascinated with some of the initiatives that you've taken up and what you've done for females in this space already. I wonder though, if we should start talking about you as a little girl yourself at school, what it was like for you growing up in Australia in a close family situation and share a little bit about your schooling and then perhaps what made you realize that you'd want to one day work in tech? Absolutely. I think there was no part of me back when I was a kid that would have thought I'd be working in tech, to be honest. I grew up pretty musical, musically inclined and pretty creative, though I was always doing stuff with my hands. Like when we'd go on holiday, my mum would bust out these like craft books and I'd get to work on like jewellery and knitting and like making stuff out of wire and like 
random, random little bits and bobs, but I always loved the kind of craft that had a process to it, which now I would say is a key indicator, I think, for young women who might be engaged in technology. If you're creative, but also a little bit like enjoying some rules and rules and structure. Um, so yeah, I was incredibly musical as well. I grew up playing the oboe from the age of eight. Um, and if you'd asked me when I was younger what I would have done, I probably would have said be a professional musician. Um, I nearly went to music school after high school instead uh, of doing a engineering degree. So that was, yeah, that was my path. So you were encouraged by some teachers and maybe inspired by your dad to take up engineering at university? I think I, I think that's about as as much strength as I can give to the decision. Um, <laughs> sort of stumbled upon. Okay, and this is going to sound probably like an obvious question, but I still like to hear from you. Were there some seriously obvious discrepancies within gender in your classes when you got to university? The gender disparity wasn't as pronounced because you had a whole mixture of people from different backgrounds, engineering backgrounds where maybe the gender disparity isn't quite as pronounced, like civil engineering, like chemical engineering, um, like biomedical engineering. But then by the time second year rolled around, I was like, where'd all my friends go? Where'd all the girls go? Because as the subjects got more specific, there were fewer and fewer women. Okay. And would you like to describe how that made you feel? I think it was... It meant that you clung to any woman you met. So you'd eye somebody across the lecture theatre and cross your fingers they'd be in your tutorial group. Some of my best friends are the women I met in my subjects, but they are few and far between. So if you met someone, you're like, great, we're going to be best friends forever. <laughs> you can't leave me because <laughs> yeah. we need each other. Yeah. Um, so because it was so few, it was so obvious when there were women, which meant it was easier to make friends and, you know, sort of build community around the fact that there weren't that many of you. I had grown up in a co-ed school, so it wasn't like I wasn't used to learning amongst both boys and girls but it meant that when it came time to do a task in a tutorial group or work on an assignment I sort of felt a bit alone like I couldn't really I couldn't really see anybody else around me who had a life that looked like mine or engaged with subjects in the same way I'd never done any programming before uni and a lot of it's quite hobbyist people come to it as kids and then by the time they reach uni they know how to do everything already whereas I was very much at the beginning of my learning journey so it was quite an isolating experience at the beginning. I wondered if you might want to talk to me at all about any racial profiling or if, especially in, in a world that's so sensitive around race today. I wonder if you experienced any of that. You So for the listeners you are of a Jewish background um, you know, was it difficult, different? Was, did you, were you aware of it? If there was anything going on at that point in your studies? I think that there were a few different times where it really became apparent to me, um, the intersectionality of the sort of boxes that people would put me into, um, being a Jewish person, um, and somebody who's not particularly, um, outward with their religion I did benefit from not having that identity be put before me unless I decided for it to be the case so I think that's a combination of white passing privilege and it's also a combination of people not even expecting there to be 
a lot of my friends had never met a Jewish person before. So it's not the norm. It's not the expectation. So it was interesting because it meant that I was sort of in control of who knew my identity and in what way I was um, needed to express that rather than in some cases, you know, people can't hide their ethnicity in the same way that a Jewish person can in some situations. And I think that it's not just um, for me as a Jewish person, but anybody who comes in with an intersection of identities that create their worldview and their experience of the world, um, when people aren't sensitive to those needs, they're actually being quite exclusive because we come in as a whole human, a whole person. You don't just come in as a student ready and willing to learn. Like there's a lot of other things that can affect your ability to do that. What's a little bit disappointing for me is that there's probably a generation between you and me being at university. And if you're experiencing that at this point, it feels like the work that we thought we were doing still is so far away from actually being where we want it to be and opening those you know, doors for let alone females, but then females of color or females of difference is so, um, it's a little bit heartbreaking. And I'm hoping conversations like today actually is what we're doing today is making people aware and realize that, you know, we are not where we need to be and we need to do more to, to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's a concept, I think it's called Sonda, where basically you have to realize that everybody is existing in their own little world and everybody is the star of their own show and you're you're a side character in most in like any context other than your own so while you have the understanding of your own lived experience every single other person you interact with has a multitude of experiences like you do that might be different to yours and so you have to be ready to listen to them and have those conversations instead of assuming that you're correct. And I think, as you said, there's a generation between you and I, um, and there's also a generation between me and the girls who I'm teaching at the moment, which I, I see the most heartening things when I teach them. And when I see the, the standard and the, the confidence that these girls have when they start their degrees now, they come in, you know, a lot of them having done these courses throughout high school or having learned how to code in an all-female environment or having been really, like, encouraged to pursue that in an educational level in high school. And they arrive with their little posses full of other girls who also know how to code. And I'm just like, wow, you know, I don't, that wasn't me. And I'm glad that it's them because... I think there's a there's a learning journey and then there's a confidence journey and they happen at the same time, but they don't happen at the same pace. So I was always, um, my learning was outpacing my confidence and I found that what, um, what bridged the gap between the two was teaching because it showed me, it quiets that little internal voice that's like, you don't know how to do this. It's like, yeah, you do. You just told someone else how to do it. So it meant that my confidence was building when I was exposed to teaching opportunities. But if you can come in with full confidence, then your learning journey is going to be so much simpler because I'd often have to like, you know, you leave your, you leave your, um, your emotions at the door sometimes when studying, because if you're studying and you find it hard and then you think about how hard it is and how awful it is and how sad it's been and how isolated you are, then you're not going to learn very much, are you? And hence Elevate was born for the exact same reasons. I sort of think that the learning that you can do, if you get those five superpowers in place, confidence and emotional intelligence, you know, two big ones on there, which you've just touched on are some of the skills that I really think we need to sort of 
hone in, hone in and, and make those girls feel like listening to their inner cheerleader rather than their inner critic and just going for it is um, wonderful. And I am, I was going to ask you a little bit more about your experience today in, in the classroom and we will get back to that. But I, before we get to that, I wanted to talk one, on one other area of sort of stigmas and stereotypes around STEM. We spoke about gender and race. And, and the third one I really wanted to touch on and a, a lot of the work that I do is around neurodiversity and neurodivergence, I guess it's called in some spaces. What challenges do you think for individuals that might have any kind of diverse learning profiles being associated in STEM might hold, or if there are any in your view? Would you like to talk about that? And then I yeah. can give you a bit more about what I wanted to touch on. Absolutely. So I think let's start with this year, right? This year has been um, the moment where any person who is neurodivergent or disabled in any way has gone, I told you, you could account for me and you were just choosing not to, right? This year has been where every single person, every single company has been forced into a position of inclusion as a side effect of the global pandemic. And I think a lot of people are feeling incredibly uh, validated right now, but they're also you know, consolation is not a good gift at the end of the road. Do you know what I mean? To be like, oh, I was right all along. So I'd just like to start by saying that there are a lot of people who have been excluded from a lot of things for a very long time, who have been yet kicking and screaming and yelling and, you know, doing a lot of hard activism work to try and be included and have spaces be more inclusive. And now they are, but not because they asked for them, which is, a, yeah, just really, really um, frustrating position to be in, I'm sure. Um, when it comes to the tech industry, I think that neurodivergence is a bit of a fraught topic because the stereotype of a coder, the stereotype of a programmer is an autistic person with no social skills. And I think that that has been an incredibly damaging stereotype, not just for the tech industry, but for autistic people, because it colors them all in the same way. It paints them all with the same brush. Whereas we know now that neurodivergency is a multitude of different things. It can look different in every single person. And even thinking about gender, it presents itself very differently between men and women. So what it means is that you might find that people's limited understanding of technology and people's limited understanding of neurodivergence combine in a really insidious way so as to assume that they might thrive in a technological environment, which is in fact becoming ever increasingly about emotional intelligence, communication skills and relationship building. So I just think there's a lot of fodder here for, for some very interesting conversation, but where we've come from is, you know, the PC versus Mac ad where Mr. PC in his button up shirt with his pen in his shirt pocket, it's, you know, competing with the cool new Mac, you know, the guy who seems to have it all. And I think that it's a really damaging place for us to have started, but I'm, I'm seeing that big tech companies are being far more astute about these things. They're including protocols within the hiring process. Um, they are providing experiences within the workplace that benefit everybody that also include neurodivergent people. So we're not looking for a, a solution that is 
pointing out the difference even more. We're looking for ways of working that can include everybody by design. Yeah, I'm definitely aware of the number of people that associate this coding and the tech stereotype as the one you addressed. And yet, you know, the truth is, if you've gone around the world and met one person with autism, the truth is you've only just met one person with autism because it presents so differently in each person. And it, they, um, the interesting thing for me, and really the timing of it was pretty uh, coincidental because I just happened to read an article this weekend in the Financial Times where Simon Baron Cohen, who's released a new book called The Pattern Seeker, um, a new theory of human invention was being discussed. And he sort of does a lot of study at Cambridge, I think, University with kids with autism uh, or adults with autism as well. Um, and, he, so, and I'm hoping we can maybe almost challenge some of the traditional preconceptions around mindsets that quote unquote flourish in technology. Um, I wanted to pick your brains on this and you've just touched on it a little bit because I know that companies are starting to address it in some ways, but he's, he explains that people who have hardwired compulsion to seek out patterns in their surroundings they follow like a simple thought process, if this, then that algorithm, suggesting that it is actually through this process of in endless iterative discovery and experimentation that such minds eventually stumble upon new inventions, pushing human evolution forward, and in many cases, changing the world forever. And obviously, many in our society see these minds as those ones with a disorder, namely, autism, as you've just said, um, but the, and they are people that struggle socially, obviously, but I guess what I'm wondering is, do you feel this is something that really isn't really the be all end all, that it shouldn't be that yes, people that think like this or have an algorithm systemic way of thinking, then they would automatically become great people to work in tech. I think, oh, there's so much in there that I yeah, want to sorry, about. I just threw you No, out. no, that's so fine. I think I'll start by saying that if this, then that mentality. Um, it, that is uh, exemplifying one of the core concepts that underpins coding and algorithms, which is how do we make decisions? And so when we do teach coding, instead of teaching specific syntax and instead of teaching, here's how you write it in this particular language and here's how you write it in that particular language, you'd get that conceptual understanding by explaining to people that they make decisions like computers make decisions every single day of their life. So you might go, if it's cold outside, I'll put a jumper on. If it's not, then I won't, right? So you actually try to get... Um, to thinking, you know, young people in particular, you do try to get them to tap into this where you can say, okay, we're going to act like a computer, right? We're going to make decisions based on inputs and then decide what we're going to do based on those inputs. So you can say, um, if it's cold outside, I'll put a jumper on. If it's not, I won't. If it's raining, I'll take an umbrella. If it isn't raining, I won't. Like that's very, very simple um, ways to sort of convey these um, concepts and get them to tap into something that is uh, not explicitly obvious to a neurotypical mind, how they make decisions and the process that they go through. What you can see in industry is that a lot of people, when they become better at something, and I'm talking industry in general, even if we just think about a school, for example, you're such a good English teacher that you become the head of department. So you do less teaching and you do more of something else, right? Or when you're a software engineer, you're so good at software engineering that you're helping other software engineers with their work 
You might become a product owner. You might become a tech lead. You might become a scrum master. You might become a business analyst and move away from the technicality of it all. So while it is the case that that way of thinking would be a good introduction for technical literacy, it's not the be-all and end-all of a career in technology and it's not the only piece you'll need. Oh, that's a great analogy. Thanks for sharing that. And I hope other parents and girls possibly listening to this interview will take that to heart because I was also interestingly going to ask you a little bit about um, a recent Netflix drama. I think that I think you've probably seen as well um, as have so many. And I was like taken aback by the main character in the recent Netflix drama, The Queen's Gambit. Um, and not that I'm suggesting, nor was it ever explained or mentioned or even suggested that the main character had any kind of disorder or even might be on the spectrum of any kind due to her traits of being able to hyper-focus. But what we all did witness was how creatively and intricately her mind works to solve puzzles. And I wondered if you think that this was a similar essence in terms of you just describing different jobs and types and, and roles that one can play in the whole technology sector. But in STEM subjects, do you think there's overlap in that? I think that a lot of developers talk about something called flow state, which might be what you're talking about, where you get this hyper-focus, you're hyper-productive. And if somebody interrupts you, it's like when you mess with a dog while they're eating, you know, leave me alone <laughs> till I'm done because you're going to interrupt me doing this thing that I'm doing like so well and so focused and so acutely in one go. So I know that that is a concept that is present in a lot of um, tech spheres and a lot of developers do try and um, map their day out in a way that will prioritize long chunks of time in order to code with the utmost efficiency and focus. So I don't think it's a, a alien concept within the tech industry, but I will say, I think it just goes to show, I, I will preface this by saying I haven't seen the Queen's Gambit, but I do know what it's about. Um, the way that we code certain skills and hobbies in certain ways, because chess was the nerdiest thing one could possibly do when I was a kid. And the girls who were in the chess club, it's like you're hanging out with the nerdiest boys. So what are you doing there? And like the boys who did it, nobody saw it as this like problem solving thing that might position you well for teamwork and collaboration and solving complicated problems or seeing patterns and seeing things clearly. Nobody saw it for its essence. They just saw it from the outside, which was the reputation that it had. Um, and I'd love if we could recode every hobby that kids have, because as we know, people are well-rounded, holistic beings. They're not just one thing that they do. If somebody says they're into chess, you should go, yeah, cool. I think we can stop being so um, judgmental and we can stop coding things with gender. We can stop seeing them as um, precursors for certain careers or indicators of certain character traits, because I think especially in young people, they should just be allowed to have fun and try new things without the fear of judgment. Yeah. Hey, here, here to that. I mean, and she's honestly, you're in for such a treat when or hopefully I haven't done any spoilers here for you in that drama because it is worth watching. Um, but she does it, you know, the, the, the writing of it, the, it's so subtle. It's so amazing. It's like that aha moment of when 
you sort of watching her surrounded by lots of men that at one point completely discounted her ability to do well in chess. And there she was kind of flourishing in this world. And she, I think she's done wonders for girl, you know, girl power. I mean, that was coding, right? That was coding all that time ago when people were doing it and everyone's like, what a nerd. Yeah. That's, you know, the inception of the stereotype, the nerdy person who tinkers around with electronics and sits in a dark basement and, you know, pushes their glasses up their nose. And it's not like that anymore. As soon as it became something lucrative, something that you could do independently working from wherever you want it became a key to unlock a certain lifestyle it became a key to unlock a certain level of income and status in society suddenly it's cool now Mm. I love the way you're saying that so you you genuinely feel that the stereotypes that we had not long ago have now sort of transformed almost like sort of the um the, the wall street guys were considered super super out there and amazing and they were really living the high life because of the jobs they had and it paid well to be in finance is that Absolutely. sort of where we're all headed with people in in coding or stem subjects you're totally right like that's a lot of questions i get from people about what i do for my work in teaching young women how to code um you know do you want them all to just become software engineers and like code for the rest of their life and that's never been my goal my goal has just been to make something that is so fraught with stereotype available accessible cool I want them to try it and then decide if they like it or not that's all I ask for you know you can't tell me you don't like the taste of tomatoes until you've tried them you know you can't tell me you don't like coding until you've tried it and what we're seeing now is that this lucrative career, this, you know, amazing skill that will elevate you and put you into this industry that can provide for you for the rest of your life. People are getting to age 18, age 25, age 30 and going, I missed the boat, but I didn't realize there was a boat for me to even get on. So I just want young women to have the opportunity to try something that they wouldn't normally try in order to decide whether or not they think it's for them. I don't want everybody to code for the, for their whole life, for the rest of their life. I don't, I don't desire anything other than giving it a go. Yeah. Well, that's huge, right? That's, that's kind of an important skill to have, like you say, with food, with jobs, with career choices. And I think things have changed so much in terms of what kind of decisions you make when you're at university and you go into a degree thinking you might be doing that for your job for the rest of your life until you sit down and retire from it and then you you know that's all you've done whereas I think there's been a wonderful um shake-up in you know in recent years of, of people changing careers finding new ways and you know if anything this pandemic has taught all of us how if we don't get on the technology wagon soon we're all going to be left behind and you know even people like me who struggle to understand how to use technology to my advantage. You know, I am trying, I really am. And I think, um, again, I'm gonna go back to the whole girls because I certainly at school was definitely in a group of majority of girls that didn't think it was something that they could try, would try um, because they didn't think they could or they should because it was seen more of something that the boys did or they were quicker at or faster at or better at. And that sort of links to the, my next point from the, the, the Baron Cohen book, which he, and he sort of says, well, you know, as we kind of all know that every single person, girl or boy um, 
neurodiverse, neurotypical falls on a spectrum of some kind, you know, and no one is, no brain is better or worse than the other. Each of us have different strengths and weaknesses. However, in his research and statistical evidence does seem to suggest that more often than not, the female brain is more likely to be on the emotional, empathetic, manipulative end of the spectrum, which he calls the type E brain. And then whereas the male brain is more likely to be a systemizing, inventive and experimental end of the spectrum, which I wondered if, again, you felt this was a natural barrier to entry for girls because they just didn't have the um, confidence, as we talked about earlier, to even try. Or if you felt there was a sort of a genetic disposition, male versus female brain that might stop us girls from or stop girls in general from wanting to take up STEM. Sorry. I have so much to say about this. I think that <laughs> we can get... We can get, no, it's totally fine. It's a very interesting topic. I think biological differences in comparison to socialization are incredibly, incredibly small. And I think that as a society, we socialize men and women in certain ways that are incredibly different to one another. And then we hold that socialization against women. We go, oh, you got no confidence. Oh, you won't try anything. And it's like, yeah, because you've been, you've been teaching me to be silent and perfect my whole life. So I think to start there, we have to be careful when we talk about research, when we talk about papers and academia that looks to investigate these things, we understand very little about the brain. And we're constantly seeking to understand more about it. But in the battle between nature versus nurture, nurture always wins. And I think there's an incredible book by a science historian named Cordelia Fine called Delusions of Gender. And what she finds and what some of the studies that she talks about is when we draw attention to something like gender, that's when women do worse. When women are reminded that they're women before doing maths tests they do worse when women are reminded that they are or when women are primed with a piece of text that says they're biologically worse at these things they do worse so I think what that says to me is that we need to be incredibly careful in our instructional design for educational materials we need to be incredibly careful when designing inclusive spaces for learning and we need to be aware of the ways that socialization is a major cause for these things that are allegedly biological differences that we can't escape from. And that any woman who rises to the top is an aberration and an abnormality. And we then say, well, she must have a male brain. No, she doesn't. She's just been fighting against all these extra barriers that she will have faced by being a woman. And I think that we've had a very public example somewhat recently um, from a guy who worked at Google. He, I mean, his name's as, he's known as the Google Manifesto guy, but his name is James Damore. And he was fired for writing a manifesto that basically said women are biologically less good at doing the job that men do here. And I think that when tech companies, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of conversation internally at Google at the time about 
freedom of speech and what you're allowed to say at work and what you're not and whether or not this guy's opinions precludes him from um, working in that environment. But ultimately what he's done is created a hostile working environment for everybody around him who now knows how he feels about people um, and he was fired. And I think anytime you have an assumption, you'll always find the anomalies. Um, anytime you have conducted research, there are biases that are present in the, in the design of the experiment. That's why things need to be peer reviewed. And I think that if we're going to go down that path of what is biological and what isn't, we need to be incredibly careful about how we phrase it because those are the things that women hear. Those are the things that young girls hear. That's what they hear. You're not as strong as men, so you won't succeed in sport. You're not as analytical as men, so you won't succeed in finance. All of these things, all they hear is the controversy, not the stats, not the reality, not the actual distilled message. And when it comes to perhaps pop psychology, it can be incredibly damaging to the learning experience of young people. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. It's actually really refreshing to hear your take on that. And I'm, I'm so pleased that we are able to sort of challenge some of the stereotypes and nature versus nurture as sort of accepted truths almost. And again, I, I, I use the word truth very loosely. It's just something that I know as an educator in parents' meetings, in lots of assemblies. Um, and I, I, of course, girl empowerment is important, but there is there, like you say, there are lots of people out there, including the, the gentleman you just mentioned. And I do think that opens up a whole different can of worms when you talk about freedom of speech, because of course, everyone's entitled to an opinion, but I do wonder how much that affects the way then girls perform. Would you like to, now maybe we can talk about exactly what Creatable is doing and how what you've launched is breaking through some of the barriers and the preconceived notions that we might've had previously. Absolutely. So Creatable has been around for four years now and was born out of a direct interaction with this very limited um, pool of women who study engineering. Um, there were two things that were happening concurrently. First of all, the engineering arm of Creatable's parent company, a film production company, was looking to hire a new mechatronics engineer and they put an ad out and of the 70 something candidates that came back only two were women and they thought well this is bogus this is just you know not what we're looking for and unfortunately it was a pretty accurate representation of the breakdown of gender within that industry the second thing that was happening was that the founder of the parent company's daughter was picking her subjects and she wanted to do a subject at school called design and technology, which is offered within the Australian curriculum. However, when kids hear it, they're sort of like, that's the girly subject where you learn to cook. You know, that's, there's, a, there's a bit of a reputation around design and technology. And what we saw was that this school that she was at didn't actually have enough interest to run the subject. So my boss's boss was like, what can we do about this? How do we engage young women in creative technology? How do we get them excited? And what they built was a curriculum that engaged young women with STEM skills and design skills that was incredibly interesting to them. It completely um, destructed the barrier to entry for them, which was that it's inaccessible, it's hard, and it's not cool or relevant to me. And suddenly... Over the course of the year, when they were looking at enrollments for the next year, 
interest had increased by 625% and it had become the most popular elective subject in that school um, in year nine and 10, which is when you can first choose your subjects, age 15, uh, 14, 15, where these girls are for the first time being asked to make decisions about the direction of their education and are exploring their interests. And I think when you show them that this is interesting, they will be intrigued. Context creates that interest. If you just code, learn to code for the sake of coding, it's not interesting, it's not fun, it's not cool. If you learn about electricity out of context, it's not cool. It doesn't make any sense and you don't care. But if suddenly you can go, here's this thing I created with my two hands, my knowledge and my skills, suddenly it's very, very, very exciting. So it's been four years since then. Um, we're doing other amazing projects with them at the moment, including a music and e-textiles project with integrated circuits and block coding. And then another one on augmented reality where we can help them design and develop and publish filters for social media. So teaching them about the future of AR and VR in a way that they interact with every single day. So these projects get them excited and a lot of them do continue on to study DNT in years 11 and 12. And it's been um, the reason for an uptick in taking of those STEM subjects because of the interdisciplinary nature of the project. So cool. And you've just sort of touched on something. You've made it so relevant for them, right? It's not just an abstract concept that they can't get their heads around because it is just dull to be completely, um, for, for many, if, if there's no purpose or they can't see the uh, benefits, you know, practical solutions to what they're doing. Yeah. And we can reframe these things in a context that makes sense to them. Yes. So I think there's a lot of conversation about how do we get women into STEM, but I think STEM as an industry has been incredibly dismissive about female innovation as gimmicky and irrelevant. You know, I'm sure that people even listening to what I said about, um, social media filters and selfie ring lights might go, oh, how vapid and how female and how feminine and how stupid and how not relevant to real life, you know, but these students go on these guided technical projects with us in order to pick up skills that we then use with them to help them implement their own idea. So the next part of the project that they do with us is solving a problem that they experience in the world. We go, what's something that annoys you that you don't think annoys somebody else? What's something that you really wish wasn't the case, you really wish you could fix? And they come up with these amazing, incredible, innovative ideas. And now they have the tech skills to actually learn how to prototype and implement and plan. And that's how you get women engaged with STEM. You stop saying, come here and do what you, do only the things that currently exist. Do what you see that's boring to you. You go, here are some skills you can use to solve problems and bring ideas to life. And that is what makes tech exciting to women. Yeah. And it sort of takes it outside themselves. So you're right. Once you've got the hook, the, the greater good that they can do. An example of that, which again, the timing of it couldn't be better, but the recent uh, and the first ever Time Magazine Kid of the Year is a 15-year-old girl called Gitanjali Rao. And she was recognized for her work uh, using technology to tackle issues ranging from contaminated drinking water to opioid addiction and cyberbullying. Um, and it's about her mission to create a global community of young innovators, innovators that solve problems for the world, right? As opposed to just making a selfie ring that might make you look cute, I guess, or a filter that might make you look a bit cuter. That isn't the point, but it's the hook that gets them involved in 
creating solutions for bigger, wider problems that they will hopefully. Absolutely. And I think the whole, to, to the untrained eye, the Time Magazine Young Person of the Year might seem like a very, um, it might seem like she has very disparate interests and these problems don't intersect at all and how can she do water contamination at the same time as cyberbullying because we've been incredibly siloed with industry and products and solutions that when innovation is used as the driving force the tools become less scary because they're a means to an end she would know about science and engineering concepts as well as knowing how to code but it stops being about the coding and starts being about what you can do with it. So you might go, how on earth does she learn all of this? I don't think there's anything in there that is too far out of reach for any young person learning in a high school today. She's taking the things she's learned and she's applying them to the real world. And that's what we try to do at Creatable as well. It's incredible. It's so incredible because it does, I have to say, it feels like something so out there and completely not achievable by the you know, average student going to high school. Um, but I think what you're saying is so important for us to hear because it will empower hopefully more and more girls. And on that note, I would love to hear from you on just in sort of closing what who your role models are, who they were when you're growing up, have they changed? And what you hope, I guess the second part of this question is what you hope to see um, in the next decade of girls coming through uh, schools, universities, and workplaces. Absolutely. Well, when I was growing up, I will say I appreciate a lot now, um, more than I understood as a kid, um, that my mom has always worked full time. And growing up in an environment where um, my my friends' moms didn't necessarily work or didn't have to work, I guess in another world, my mom didn't have to work either. But growing up in an environment where it was totally normal for both of my parents to have full-time jobs has meant that I pursue a career. I'm also in an environment where my grandfather, who's 82, he still has a job because he loves what he does. He builds architectural models and four days a week, he goes into the city and for a big architecture firm, builds models of their buildings that they're developing because he loves what he does. And I think that really showed me that work isn't work if you like what you do, not because of the external um, motivation of money, but because you want to be proud of yourself, proud of your work, proud of your life, um, and look back and say, I did something that was meaningful to me and those around me. So growing up, I had really good examples. And then when I came to university, I did already mention that my thesis supervisor um, was a fantastic woman named Dr. Nadine Marcus. She took me on as her student and we built a really good relationship during the course of writing my thesis. Um, she was the one who recommended that I nominate, she nominated me, but she recommended that I was nominated for this Anita Borg Award within my university. It was the first time that a woman who was older than me in the industry, saw what I had in me, saw what I had already been doing and said, this requires some recognition because I think awards are often retroactive. And at the time I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm not even doing anything. And she's like, no, but you have, and it's important. So that was the start of my journey of having like an advisor who I can connect with in that way. Um, believe in me and push me down the road. So she's also been a massive um, inspiration to me in how I approach 
other young women and how I make sure that people who I see doing cool stuff around me get elevated um, as I get elevated or get, you know, get put forward for opportunities and are given um, a room, room to speak and room to voice their opinions and speak their mind and share their experience. Because if you've got somebody who's uh, further down that path, making sure you're coming along, um, it's a really important part of what keeps you, what keeps you going. And I will also say all my students and this young Time Magazine Young Person of the Year, that those people inspire me too because I often think to myself, if I'd only had a program like Creatable when I was at school, who knows where I'd be now? And that's the whole thing, right? I know I'm not trying to belittle my achievements by any means, but who knows where I could be? Who knows where I might be if I had that confidence and somebody had ignited that spark and seen all these disparate hobbies and pursuits I was undertaking and gone, you might be good at this thing you didn't know that you were good at. So that's what inspires me as well. They are my role models because I don't even know how far they'll go. It really emphasizes how much championing girls and validating their effort and their interests and getting them exposed to as many different areas. Um, what it can do for certain people you just you don't know really isn't it it's just so important and Hannah you you really if you aren't a force of change for the good I don't know what would be you are incredibly inspiring I feel so much uh, admiration for the work that you're doing I think the girls that have the fortune to work with you are so lucky to have someone like you behind them and that I'm so grateful that you're giving those girls this fantastic platform and I love the work that Creatable is doing and I wish you all the very very best in all the work that you guys are continuing to do and I hope you'll stay in touch and come back and and we can have another conversation soon and find out what kind of new projects you've been up to and what you've achieved. Thank you so much and I just want to say thank you to you as well Ramita because there's so much synergy between what Elevate does and what Creatable is endeavoring to do so it's fantastic to talk to somebody who who understands these wicked problems and how we might go about creating solutions for them. So keep, keep on keeping on. Oh, yay. Yeah. It's all about kind of getting this awareness out there really, isn't it? And it's so great. The power of technology that allows us to connect. And, and whilst you're sitting in Australia, I can still have this conversation with you and hopefully share it with lots and lots of people around the world so that they continually feel that there is no, glass ceiling you know go smash it girls go smash it <laughs> absolutely thank you so much absolute pleasure thank you so much what an absolute rock star hannah Bita is i've been so inspired by our conversation and i hope you are too if you're interested in finding out more about the work that they are doing please visit the creatable website and hopefully get your girls involved in tech uh, thanks so much again to everybody for listening. I do hope you will subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with as many others as you can. It would be so appreciated. Until next time, speak to you soon. Bye.